Welcome to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am one of the hosts. I'm here with JJ Jen Flown. And today we're going to talk about unaccompanied alien children in the TVPA, in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And by alien, we don't mean from Mars. Hey. No, but I'm visualizing it right now, little green children. Just popping. Well, and I think just really quickly, because I before, I, I this is one of those issues where there's a lot of language concerns. Aliens, which is a legal term for foreigner, a lot of people don't like that term. They don't like the term illegal aliens. They like something a little bit more similar to uh, illegal resident or immigrant or migrant. But in this case, we will be using the term alien just because that is what's reflected. Even though it's kind of fallen out of favor, it's what's reflected in the language of the law. And we will be citing a lot from law in this particular podcast. So that's why, please don't hate us. We don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily reflect the views of us. But. And we're going to focus mostly on what the law means and how it's played out with stats and so on later on. We are going to have to get briefly into politics because it is an issue not just with the current administration, but there have been other criticisms of the way the law is laid out. But it is part of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Unaccompanied Alien Children, for short, UAC. I'm going to start quoting a few sections from President Trump's State of the Union on January 30th, because it relates to this. Quote, six members of the Savage Gang, MS-13, have been charged with Kayla and and Nisa's murders. Many of these gang members took advantage of glaring loopholes in our laws to enter the country as unaccompanied alien minors and wound up in Kayla and Nisa's high school. Tonight... I'm calling on the Congress to finally close the deadly loopholes that have allowed MS-13 and other criminals to break into our country. We have proposed new legislation that will fix our immigration laws and support our ICE and Border Patrol agents so that this cannot ever happen again. The United States is a compassionate nation. We are proud that we do more than any other country to help the needy, the struggling, and the underprivileged all over the world. But as President of the United States, my highest loyalty, my greatest compassion, and my constant concern is for America's children, America's struggling workers, and America's forgotten communities. I want our youth to grow up to achieve great things. I want our poor to have their chance to rise. End quote. I'm now going to read another short story. It's a story of Rosa. Rosa is a 17-year-old girl from Honduras. She grew up with her brother David her older sister, and two cousins. When Rosa was five years old, her father was murdered, and her mother abandoned her and David shortly thereafter. She fled her home country of Honduras in the summer of 2016 after watching gang members kill her 16-year-old brother, David, right in front of her. Rosa had shared with her caseworker that David had fled previously to the United States to escape gang violence, And upon apprehension at the border, he signed papers for voluntary departure and was sent back to Honduras. He was killed 22 days after he arrived back in Honduras. So the story of unaccompanied alien children isn't just about what happens after they arrive at our border 
and possibly into our country. It's also what happens when they're turned away. It's what happens on the journey there. People come to our border for different reasons. Some of them are trying to escape really bad situations. Some of them are in imminent danger. Some of them are being trafficked with cartels involved, whether it's as drug mules, whether it's cartels bringing them to the border, whether being trafficked somewhere along in the journey, or otherwise exploited or in danger. And this will be one of the few times where I'm going to quote Glenn Beck, where he said, they're children, whatever else they are, they're children. Uh Now, some of those children are 17, so we're talking teenagers as well. But it's a story of youth who, for a variety of reasons, are coming to our country, to our border. And some of their stories, and many of their stories, are precarious. To turn a blind eye to children makes a statement. And it's something that we we should weigh pretty heavily about if we're the greatest country in the world, as some say we are. And I think there's a lot that's good about my country. And I think we have done lots of good in the world. And I think there's a responsibility that comes with that. Now, can we solve everybody's problems? No. But it's not just about America and Americans. It's not. And it can't be. That's my stance. And that's what I believe as an American, as a person of faith, that it's about more than Americans. So I'm going to get into the law, but any other opening thoughts, JJ? Yeah, I think just one, just to offer clarification, if you're not familiar with the MS-13 gang, it is a criminal enterprise that is primarily made up of Central American, South American members, and then people in the U.S. who identify with that particular ethnic group. They stretch across 40 states. They're a very prolific gang. They're known for being particularly violent. They're involved in a set number of criminal enterprises. And their gang motto is, uh, quote, kill, rape, control. So they've been on the FBI's radar for a long time. But what I think is important to remember is that there are a lot of people coming into the United States to flee gang activity or to flee in particular, MS-13 gang activity. You have a lot of young people, young men in particular, who are being indoctrinated or or pushed into this gang activity because it's actually the only way to survive. So I think it's it's just important to remember that if if the MS-13 gang is being used as a boogeyman, it's important to know where gangs come out of and that just because someone is in the same ethnic group as the MS-13 gang, which, by the way, did initially start in Los Angeles in the 1980s right like it came out of disenfranchised salvadorians hondurians and guatemalans in the 1980s fighting in los angeles for for territory so i just think it's important to note that i don't think personally and from what from what i've read in a number of places including the atlantic that tightening immigration rules and then also expanding on what what it is that particularly minors traveling are are going to have options to do i don't think that's the solution to the gang problem because they've certainly had no problem recruiting legal americans in the in the u.s yeah good clarification with ms-13 uh ms-13 do look scary because 
there's tattoos and so on, and because there's been some pretty heinous crimes committed by some of them, but they're not cartels. Although they do have ties to particular cartels. I think it's that particular groups of MS-13, because like a gang's not a monolith, right? Like you may be part of it, but there are chapters. But we could say the same thing for, for motorcycle gangs made up of, you know, Caucasian Americans in the Midwest, right? It's, it's just that MS-13 is particularly bloody. Right. And cartels can be bloody too. Uh, they're they're mm-hmm. usually targeted. Uh, cartels are up. But with gangs... Yeah, they're a threat, but they're not well-funded like a cartel. They're not well-organized like a cartel. They're a lot more dispersed. They Mm -hmm. can be contracted with with cartels for drugs and so on. But cartels are a much bigger threat. And it's a fallacy to say we should crack down on unaccompanied children in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act because of some MS-13 murders. Most youth are not part of MS-13 and are not going to be part of MS-13. But the threats, like protecting Americans and dealing with threats, the conversation is legitimate. It's a matter of how we have that conversation and whether the approach fits the situation. And without getting into the whole gun control debate, like there's discussions with that about whether the approach is the right approach, whether it's going to solve the problem, whether banning a certain gun would actually help, whether certain approaches are impinging on freedoms. But then when we start talking about national security, suddenly having approaches that may not help is okay. (laughs) Yeah. Or having things that are going to affect people's freedoms or lives is okay. If we're going to have a consistent liberty approach than having database solutions and addressing the actual problem and not being too emotional or or fearful is appropriate. So that's the political portion. One of the laws that people have come up with in Congress is the Protection of Children Act, which is kind of a Orwellian name for something that does the opposite. And it would treat all unaccompanied children in a similar fashion and uh, have a more cursory screening process. This is partially due to the, the number of children that have come through the border. But it, it, it would lower the standards and uh, make it less likely that children are going to be adequately screened. One of the things is, it's one thing to know is that going back years, Border Patrol has done an insufficient job of screening children. We'll get more into how things are going, but like for instance, 13 of 15 facilities, when they're filling out the form, which is the unaccompanied alien child screening addendum, talk to the children in a public place, which might be in the presence of people that are threatening or of traffickers, and thus greatly reducing their likelihood of saying anything. So lowering the standards is one of the, quote, approaches to closing a loophole. But this is not new. Legislation like this has been floating around for years. And it may be that there are changes that could be made to the TVPA. But what's important to talk about is that the TVPA, in part, is designed to protect victims of of sex and labor trafficking and to have ways of providing services, of funding services, and having standards for law enforcement. And so it's very concerning if we start talking about lowering standards of screening and victim identification because it, it pretty much communicates that we care less about human trafficking. 
if we're not going to try to identify the situation that people are in. So the law was part of the reauthorization of the TVPA in 2008, most notably Section 235. It was partially based on a Senate law that was passed just in the Senate in 2005 that was called the Unaccompanied Alien Child Protection Act. So this was designed to look at, all right, how do we adequately screen children who come to our border? So when children are at the border, upon apprehension, Border Patrol agents will need to make a determination of whether a child is unaccompanied. So we are starting on the law specifics now. So in part, a child who has no lawful immigration status in the United States has not attained 18 years of age and has no parent or legal guardian or anyone available to provide care. Sometimes the children at the border do have family inside the United States, but if there is no parent or legal guardian present or nearby, they are defined as unaccompanied. So the short version, so if they are contiguous, in other words, from an adjacent country like Mexico, so DHS will screen uh, Mexican children within 48 hours of apprehension, and determine whether they've been a victim of trafficking or if they have an asylum claim based on the fear of persecution. If not, they're eligible to agree to a voluntary return to Mexico. Now, if they are from a non-contiguous country, like Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador, then they must be transferred or should be transferred to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the ORR, within 72 hours of apprehension, where they're guaranteed an immigration court hearing. That was the short version, the long version. And then we'll talk about whether or not that version actually happened. Okay, so if they are from a contiguous country like Mexico, step one, screening. DHS, of which Border Patrol is part of, they screen within 48 hours of apprehension, determine where they're from, and that, yes, they're from Mexico, and are they a victim or do they have a claim? And they will need to determine that they're not a victim of severe trafficking, that they're not at risk of being trafficked upon return, that there's no credible fear of persecution upon returning, and that the child is able to make an independent decision to withdraw an application for admission to the United States, otherwise known as a voluntary return. If the child meets the criteria, then they're eligible for that, and they can be returned to their home country. If they do not meet those criteria, they'll be transferred to ORR and put in formal removal proceedings. And with repatriation, which there is cost for, State Department, now we have the State Department involved, they must ensure safe repatriation of unaccompanied alien children into their country through agreements with those countries. So then they have to work with the appropriate government or welfare officials and return them during daylight hours. So in order to make sure that they're okay, there, there's a process involved and there are resources attached to that. And it's understandable how there could be cost involved for our country and limited resources and everything. But it's also like, who are we with the United States? And do we want to put these children in worse situations? If that sounds complicated, if it sounds like it's not black and white, that's exactly how we see it. It's not a simple either or. So the other part of the law is if they're from a non-contiguous country. This is where it gets more complicated. If they're from El Salvador... So they are placed in formal removal proceedings and they appear in immigration court. And they're now, 
the responsibility of uh, health and human services in the United States, so another agency. So here's the things that the TVPA lists as the steps for children from non-contiguous countries. So notification, HHS must be notified within 48 hours about the apprehension. And then there's the transfer. The children should be transferred to HHS no later than 72 hours after the child is determined to be unaccompanied. Then safe placement, they must be placed in the least restrictive setting possible while waiting their court hearing. This may mean placement with a family relative or a sponsor, and if there's no sponsor, then the OOR retains custody, which may mean a shelter or foster home, for instance. Then a suitability assessment. They can't be placed until HHS determines that the sponsor is capable of providing for the child's physical and mental well-being. Then there's the orientation. HHS must work with the Executive Office for Immigration Review to ensure that custodians receive legal orientation presentations. Access to counsel. HHS must try to ensure that they have access to pro bono legal counsel. And then child advocate. The children should be provided access to an advocate. If that sounds like a lot, it is. That's partially why it's complicated. So now that I've laid the groundwork, how does this work in reality, JJ? Uh, it's kind of a hot mess. So what happens automatically is that you, one, the big thing is, is that these are all institutions that are chronically underfunded, right? So when you are dealing with a chronically underfunded and overwhelmed system, and by overwhelmed, I mean that there's a metric crap ton of kids coming through the system who have nowhere to go or who are in flux and are trying to be processed by a very tiny, often overwhelmed detention center with only two or three people who can work at a time or have been approved to work, who are working maybe unpaid overtime. What you have then is, is necessarily kids who kids who fall through the cracks. This is no different than when we talk about how other U.S. social services are just completely overwhelmed. That all comes directly from the fact that there are so many people coming through seeking a life in the U.S. and then being picked up and then sent to their system. So when, when Seth talks about the process that there's, the children are supposed to go through if they're victims of human trafficking, you've got to ask yourself, how is it that these victims are assessed and processed? So are they getting one-on-one -on, -one on time every day with a authority figure that they've grown to trust where they will then disclose? Are they getting sort of uh, classes daily or some sort of daily conversational sort of seminar thing where they're learning that they can trust the police in the U.S., that they can trust the social service worker in the U.S.? Do they have constant access to a translator? Because I think there's this preconception that every, every child coming into the U.S. under the system is coming from Mexico or South America and that they all just speak Spanish. And that's that's not true at all. One, we have children coming from places other than South America. And then two, we have people within South America speaking wildly different languages, wildly different dialects within countries. So when you combine just the staffing necessary to have all of that together in something that is chronically already underfunded, 
you get people who maybe would have otherwise disclosed that they're victims of trafficking not disclosing that they're victims of trafficking because one they don't know that's an option or b they don't feel safe with that disclosure and that's very very sad the thought that you know we know that there are children there who are disappearing we know that there are children there who are being sent back to dangerous situations who are victims but we haven't been able to appropriately assess them. Then there's also the fact that our assessment that generally, and we talk about this in our podcast on psychological coercion, we do have this idea of what an ideal victim or a perfect victim looks or acts like. And when you have a child that's been traumatized, quite possibly long-term, their behavior is going to be very different. And so, if we don't have this assessment of, of what it is that students are, the children are actually going through, how, how are we to accurately parlay that in, into serving them appropriately? What really makes me anxious or, or particularly sad about this is Central American children are just as likely now as they were in 2008 when their protections were added into the TVPA. Sexual assault on children in Central America is up. Homicide is up across uh, the board. Uh, Honduras is the murder capital of the world. El Salvador and Guatemala are fourth and fifth, respectively. Violent crime is on the rise in Central America. And drug-related violence, so, so violence related to drug cartels and their actions, are on the rise. Within those countries, so within... Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, the very countries that Trump, President Trump is referencing directly, those countries are reporting that their social welfare systems, their court systems, their police, their prosecutors, their, their version of children and youth services are exceptionally overwhelmed that they can't handle all of the child sexual assault cases that they get that they can't handle all of the gang violence against children. They can't even handle the orphans as a result of gang violence, that they just do not have enough funding, they, they do not have enough first responders or actors to handle the crimes perpetrated against them. So even if off the off chance you have a child who's entered into the U.S., who hasn't been a direct victim of, of violence or, a, a, you know, been directly threatened, but their parents have sort of, you know, seen what's going on and have, have tried to attempt to move them into the U.S. Sending them back, particularly perhaps after maybe their parents have paid a large smuggling fee, sending them back is very, very dangerous. I mean, the American Immigration Council has talked about how 49% of Salvadorian boys and 61% of Salvadorian girls have cited gang threats or violence as a reason they came to the U.S., and these are children. Now, boys are afraid of assault or murder if they don't join a gang or being forced to join a gang. Girls are afraid of rape or being sold into sex trafficking by gang members. Just a really quick note. We have a past podcast with Amber Moffat where we discuss forced gang recruitment in El Salvador. So uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to that podcast. And so what I just want to make very clear is that I think people have this perception that if you ship kids outside of the U.S. back to their home country or their country of origin, that that country can just clean up the, the problem and will fix it and will provide for them. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Instead, what we have are children who are already 
extremely liable and extremely vulnerable to exploitation and trafficking, if already not previous victims of exploitation and trafficking, getting sent back into a situation where we've just increased by shipping them back into a dangerous situation, we've just increased their vulnerability. So JJ, how many unaccompanied children have been arriving at the United States over the last several years? Well, what we have kind of coming in is, I think, two separate two separate factors. One, we have mass numbers of children attempting, and this and this, you know, obviously stretches up to people age eighteen of years. People trying or attempting to leave Central America and being stopped at various points along the way. For example, just from January and July of 2016, 18,792 minors from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador were picked up in Mexico. Whereas in 2015, there were only about 21,000 total for the entirety of, of the year. So you're seeing just increasing numbers, and I'll link everyone, of course, obviously these fact sheets so you can play around with it, play around with my math. But you have tons of kids attempting either on their own or sent via their parents to come into the U.S. This has continued to rise since 2014. So in some cases, I only have data going up to 2015. 2016 maybe is the best that I like in terms of most recent. Now, when we're talking about unaccompanied child migrants who are traveling completely by themselves, in the space of two years, we had over 100,000 from Central America who were, who were picked up. That is insane to me, that, that pure number of children. And you have children as young as, as infants, so maybe an older a uh, child in the family carrying a child with them, but then they're technically unaccompanied because you can't have two. You can't have a child be legally responsible for another child. We then don't have this issue where we have roughly 20,000 children a year who are deported from the U.S. who are then coming back in within a few years. So think about it this way. You have maybe someone who came as an unaccompanied minor when they were six or seven years old in, say, 2012, the conflict and the issues within Central America continue to rise. So then maybe in 2015, it's taken them that long to, to get the money or sort of the gumption, you know, resources together. They then leave again. In that same period of time, we had about 77,000 um, accompanied minors who were released. And so as, as Seth talked about earlier, like placed within U.S. communities with, with distant families with respected adults who are kind of stepping in as almost like foster parents. But we're also then losing, again, if you have you know a child who was deported, deported at 17 and then comes back in at 19, they no longer count. But clearly at first they were a child deported. Uh, the vast majority of children, I will say, though, are, we found in the data, are boys between ages of 12 and 17. So it seems like boys who are making the journey on their own are between the ages of 12 and 17. It seems to be that maybe that's when parents feel comfortable with sending them. But girls, for children of the age of 12, it seems to be primarily female girls. And I think the reason for that is 
if you look at what people are citing as their fear profile, again, it's it's parents and girls afraid that girls are just going to disappear or be victims of sexualized violence. Whereas with boys, it's fear that they're going to be forced to join a gang, which will probably happen around the time a boy jo- uh, you know hits puberty. So that actually kind of makes sense for me. It's it's what they're afraid of that's that's processing that migration flow. Now, I would guess there are smugglers often involved in the process. Like crazy. And so, again, to reference the podcast that we just did a little while ago on smuggling versus human trafficking, smugglers are heavily involved with getting these unaccompanied minors into the U.S. just because they need someone to show them the way. You need someone to who knows the routes, particularly if you're going over land, knows the you know, has access to resources like a boat if you're going by sea, has access to fake paperwork, can tell you what trains to take, what guards to bribe, what, you know, what area of fencing or what area, since there's large parts of of the border between the U.S. and Mexico that are just open desert and and don't have like a physical fence there, you know, what what is the safe places to pass there? Where have, how how should I say, uh, where uh, resources have been left? So sometimes what they'll do is they'll bury like food or water packages, things like that. So how, how to do that? So smugglers are involved, but then you also do have children riding trains or attempting to travel on their own. Children, even even though they're quite young, child migrants know are, are very smart. There's a lot of sort of conversation within the community about how, how to get. So people may have say, a smuggler to get them from Guatemala, El Salvador, or Honduras into Mexico, and then from Mexico they'll form sort of these informal groups together and then travel themselves. Or they might have traveled themselves into Mexico and then paid a smuggler. It's, it's very sort of complicated. It's very contextual. But for the children who travel themselves, a lot of them will say that they traveled on La Bestia, which means the beast. And those are the, French, the, the freight trains that go across Mexico into the U.S., and about half a million Central Americans do ride on those annually. This is not passenger trains. These are people who literally hop on the side of the train and hold it. They climb on top of the train and are on the roof of the train. They may be able to get into a car if there's not a door locked or they can break into a door. And they will stay there. So you have you know children literally hanging off of a freight train to, to try to survive. And along, and along the route, these Adults and children are both liable for this, but in this case, for this particular podcast, to focus on children, children are at risk of abduction. There are smugglers who will pull children off of trains. There are thieves. There are policemen or soldiers who will blackmail or threaten them. You have drug cartels who who will pull people off trains and say you have to work for them or pay a ransom or they'll kill you. It's very very dangerous. There have been a number of really fantastic ethnographies done of children who ride trains and actually a really great documentary that i will link everyone to that i highly recommend everyone watch it it will make you sad it's called which way home it came out in 2009 and it follows a series of accompanied child migrants who are trying to reach the u.s and in this case they are following a honduran well two elder um two hondurans two el salvadorians so children who are attempting they're the boys ages 12 to 17 who are attempting to come into the u.s um and you actually see what happens when they are picked up by u.s authorities and then deported back to their country of origin and the answer is nothing good what i really want 
to stress is that these kids who are making adults, like a very adult decisions to put themselves at risk, who are traveling, but who, when interviewed, say things like they were really hoping they would get like adopted by like a rich American family who would send them to school. Like kids are still kids, even when they do these incredibly adult things. And I think that that's reflected when we've done, you know, things on child soldiers, right, Seth? Like there's no matter what you've been through, like developmentally, there are still, I think, places that you are as, as a kid. One of the things, though, that was really rough for me is reading through this is that seeing things that were interviews with people, you know, sort of in 2014, 2015, when they call the train the beast. I've pulled a number of posts now from 2017, and they're not calling it the beast anymore. It seems that the parlance is now the train of death. And I didn't think you could get worse than the beast, but like now if we're sliding into death, that's not great at all and i would like to point out too that like while these kids are on these trains the only way to get on and off is to physically jump off of a moving train and so there's there's no access to running water there's no access to electricity there's no access to food there are a number of largely mexican women's groups who attempt to serve migrants especially focusing on child migrants attempting to travel into the u.s and they'll literally just go along like wayfair stations and just throw like bottles of water sacks of food and things like that to kids or or two adults on the train but but that's kind of it it's not like it's a government service it's not like it's a social welfare service that's you know provided by the state or anything like that it is literally like local women who got tired of finding dead bodies along the side of the train tracks and started offering up sort of direct services that way. But so that's, I just, I just so want to stress to everybody, how, how can you possibly think that it's a, it's a light decision or it was a decision taken without much care or a decision without a lot of, you know, feeling or planning behind it. If you're literally in a, like a 11 year old tied to a train and then we send them back and then they do it again. They come back, uh, which is evidence in the documentary. People will attempt to make the journey again because when when your options are travel or death, why, you know, skip death. And we recognize that there are other players involved, like the smugglers. Do, do they tend to know our immigration laws? Yes. Is it likely they know that children will be viewed as more sympathetic? Yes. Are there cartels involved because cartels are involved in human smuggling? Yeah. Would they ever drop off children as distractions? That's possible. Mm -hmm. It's also likely they've received payment even if they do use the children in some way. They like to get as much profit as possible. Is every child who comes to the border a mature individual? No. Do some of them have rough lives? Yes. So there's no one clear profile or picture. Yes, there are nefarious people in the mix. Yes, people know our immigration system is overwhelmed. And there are likely people who will try to use that to their advantage. All that said, we have youth coming to our borders, most of whom, based on the data that we have, are coming from situations that are not very safe or that are openly dangerous and that they're vulnerable in the entire process and that sending them back may put them in more danger. So that becomes, what do we do about that? 
and there's not necessarily an easy answer. Mm-hmm. The Obama administration was trying to get more immigration judges hired to deal with the backlog. Congress didn't deal with it. More immigration judges is also a priority of the Trump administration. Congress still hasn't come up with a solution there. Seems like something everyone can agree upon, but it takes funding, and some of this isn't overnight. You can't just get a bunch of new judges in overnight. That uh, when, when we last had a surge of uh, Border Patrol agents being hired, then you, then you have the challenges of training. You have the challenges of maybe not getting the best people in there. And so that can affect things like who's susceptible to corruption. So even if you, quote, want to do things that will help, it doesn't happen overnight. And we still have a backlog and we still have children coming And what do we do about that? Yeah. And if all you get out of this podcast is it's complicated and, boy, we care about children, but we can only do so much, but let's try to do the best that we can, we'll take that. Yeah, honestly, at this point, I will just take it if people understand that this is a a far more complicated thing than, you know, there's a 17 MS-13 gang member who came in illegally. That that is not the whole situation wrapped up in a pretty in a pretty little bow. Where sending children out of uh, that are here that are in the U.S. illegally, sending them out of the country back to their country of origin is not going to magically solve our gang crime. It's not. So with that, I hope this was helpful to some of you. And uh... it's just sad. It's I can we go back to the Glenn? Maybe it's it's best to end on the Glenn Beck quote. Like these are children. Yes, with, with emphasis. These are children. They're like still they're, they're children. They're little kids. I, I, you know, I'm sure other people listening to the podcast have children. I don't have children. I don't think Seth has children. You don't have children. Do you have surprise children? I don't know about. No, I'm pretty sure children. I don't. No surprise secret children. I'm a woman, so I would know. Um, you would hope <laughs> if I had secret children. But I, I nanny, and I babysit a lot, and so I, I take care of. There are, there are like five or six kids here in, in Denver that I, I see quite regularly that I babysit for, the eldest of which is eight. And he, I still read him stories at bedtime, right? I can't imagine his parents, who like love him, having to bundle him up on a train to send him out of the country because it's the only way to keep him safe. And, and maybe to, to cut off anyone who says, well, why why don't then the parents travel with them? Why are they unaccompanied? I, we touched on this at the very beginning, but maybe to end on. Parents aren't sending their children away, I would say, except in very rare cases. <laughs> but like for the most part, parents aren't sending their children away with the, with the aim of, I'm, I'm just getting rid of my kid. They're, they're sending them away because it is the only way that they can do that safely. They might only have the money to pay a smuggler for one person. They also might have other minor children that they are physically responsible for. So, you know, if you have an infant, but you also have a, have a 10-year-old, the 10-year-old is being courted by, you know, a gang or a local cartel. Send the 10-year-old because it's, it's the most necessary for their safety. You know, life is complicated. Family life is very complicated. I've one of the cases that I've linked to, you'll see, is that they had a distant family member who was willing to take their little girl, but not willing to take their little boy. And so the only way to keep their little boy safe was then to send the little boy across to the U.S. within the aim of once they had enough money, they would go collect their little girl and then try to do family reunification in the U.S. 
unfortunately there's no update on the story so i don't i don't know what ended up happening to them but i'm that concerns me that there's no it makes me think that reunification didn't happen family reunification is, is very hard and very rare so if anyone were to argue that there are some broken pieces relating to the how we're handling unaccompanied alien children yes we don't have the services for it Hell, to the no but here's the thing too is that i want to make very clear that like no one does it's just we, we expect a little bit more out of the U.S. At least I do. Yes. Let, let's not demonize children. Let's just right? not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love when people have a conversation like, well, they should, they should know not to come into the U.S. against the country's borders. Listen, I – how – you're five. I – you're, that's that's a that's a parental decision or, or position from somebody who's an authority for you. Even if you know that what you're doing is not 100% legal or 100% on the up and up, like you're not reading legal codes at seven. People do what they have to do to survive and they make the best choice between sometimes two bad choices. And so with as the United States, we have to pay attention, see how we can do, how we can improve the situation. You know, Mexico... Now that their economy's improved, and this despite all the cartel activity with an improved economy, we have less immigration from Mexico to the United States, substantially. If you help a country be a little more secure, if you help a country improve their economy, suddenly less immigration to other countries. So there's a case to be made for intelligent foreign aid to help other countries. I would rather see the countries in the Golden Triangle thrive by giving them money, spend the same amount of money keeping them out. Now, of course, it's not a pure either or, but it's saying let's make sure to do both and try to be intelligent and humane, caring about Americans, but also caring about the human rights of people who come to our shores. That's all I got. I'm in the same boat. <sighs> Treat children like children. That's one thing I have learned in my travels. Children are children. Yep. Yep. Overwhelmingly so. <laughs> All right. With that, we bid you farewell. Until next time. Bye, everybody. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.